What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, W. Kamel Bell. We can have a conversation about brutal things, or things that make us sad, and find laughter, because that's your system's self-defense mechanism to not get taken down by the pain, right? And also, as, as Black folks, If we didn't turn this pain into art, we wouldn't still be here. If we didn't figure out ways Mm. to find some some breath and some space, we wouldn't still be here. You know, America, you're welcome for all of your popular music because black people are like, I got to do something with this racism. How about invent (laughs) rock and roll? From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I am so excited about our guest today, comedian, television host, political pundit, advocate, husband, daddy, and I get to call him my friend. We are joined this morning by the one and only W. Kamel Bell. He's got a new book out, Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book. What's up, my G? Hey, how's it going? Good to talk to you. It's going great. How are you doing? You know, <laughs> you know how it's going out in these streets. Is <laughs> <laughs> another day as a black man in America. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm doing uh, better, than mo- better than most, but I'll say, but you know, still, still living in this America. Right on. Um, come on, we have, uh, I think, more time to chat today than we ever have before. So I want to start with a little bit about you. Uh, you were born in Palo Alto, California, but kind of grew up all over the place: Alabama, Chicago. What was that like, and how did it shape your view of the world? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot recently. I've, I've spent most of my life traveling this country. <laughs> like, it's it's funny that that's my job to travel the country, but I really have. Like, from a very young age, I would. My mom lived in Indianapolis, and then I would go to Alabama to visit my dad, and then we moved to Boston, and we moved to Chicago. So I have just spent. I very at a very early age, I learned that not every corner of America was like every other corner of America, and every other corner, every corner of America judged people in other corners of America, and often they weren't correct about how they were judging them. But you were black wherever you went. Yeah. yeah. Did you experience your blackness, you know, differently in Boston? um, Oh yeah. Than perhaps Chicago. I mean. yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd really say the difference at that point in my life was north and south, was that's how I experienced the difference, was like, you know, that that there was a very different way in which I felt walking around the streets of of Chicago and Boston, and I was, you know, I was young, this was before I turned 13, versus how I felt walking around Alabama. And weirdly, you know, it, you know, there's that expression in the in the north, they don't care how close you get as long as you don't get too high, in the south, or the north, they don't care how high you get as long as you don't get too close, in the south, they don't care how close you get as long as you don't get too high. So... Southern racism can be very friendly. <laughs> it can be very, it can be very inviting because they're sort of used to everybody being together. Whereas in the North, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It it's friendly on the surface, but it doesn't go that deep. You know, people look at me like I'm nutty when I say it, but I I sort of prefer the racism in the South. I know <laughs> it's, it's there. It's more, it's more, it's more clear. The lines are clear. Yeah, it's more clear. <laughs> Exactly. Like, I can navigate that, right? More yeah. so than I can sort of navigate, you know, um, neoliberal yes. trash, right? Where someone is saying one thing, and but then their actions, clearly they don't like me or my kind. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, one of the great things I think I've done for my daughters is that, you know, this has changed during the pandemic significantly, but they've been going to Alabama their whole lives to see their grandpa. So, they like me. They're not going to develop a fear of the South just because it is the South. They will know. Well, no, that part is cool. I wouldn't go there. They will actually know that there's different Souths in the South, which I think is important. And I didn't realize how important it was when I was growing up until I got older and really moved out here to 
to the Bay Area and would be like, yeah, I'm going to go visit my dad in Alabama for vacation. They're like, for vacation <laughs> in Alabama? And I realized <laughs> people, you know, even in the, even in the liberal uh, bubble of Berkeley and Oakland, that people are afraid of the South. Yeah, I, I was afraid of the South for a little bit. I, I actually would be a black belt had the competition not been in Texas. And I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was like, yeah, I'm cool. Yeah. Um, but then <laughs> it's funny because Las Vegas, when you get off the strip, is basically the South. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Man, most people don't know that. They don't realize that Vegas was yeah. a very, is still, very segregated racist town formed by founded by the Mormons, the mob, and cowboys. So, yeah, you know, exactly. What kind of That's what I was going to say. It's like a mobster cowboy town. Like, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Kamal Bell, when did you figure out you were funny? Like, when uh, did jokes enter the scene? I mean, I know, I mean, you know, I was going to say, I think I'm still figuring it out, but uh, I was a kid. <laughs> I didn't figure out I was funny. I figured out I loved comedy first. So, you know, I'm of that, of that age where. I remember when Eddie Murphy came on Saturday Night Live and it was like, you know, I remember I remember when Eddie Murphy came on. I'm like, he better be funny as Garrett Morris. Like, that's the age I am. Like, so, like I remember. Right. right. Yeah. You know. Too. Yeah. So I so I was, you know, there's a thing now called a comedy nerd. And I realized, oh, I was a comedy nerd before that was a thing. So it was a thing I really enjoyed. And as an only child, I was always in my head. So I was always thinking of things and thinking, cracking myself up and making my mom laugh and then making my friends laugh. But I wasn't the class clown. It really was just something that I. What, that I really felt like I wanted to do and felt like I could do, but I was not a kid who was like, you know, my dad still laughs when he remembers me telling him that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian because he was like, you've never said anything funny in your life. <laughs> I was like, not to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I of you. I read, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I read somewhere uh, that it, you were described as a socio-political comedian. Mm-hmm. How did you get politicized and and what were some of the first issues that you were passionate about i mean i'll say this i grew up around like just sort of but my one of my best friends jason like his after school job was was with an organization called sane freeze nuclear which was about nuclear disarmament so he was 16 knocking on people's doors talking about nuclear disarmament and that just meant that like from a very early age i had political people around me you know what i mean like people who were like where they were always the conversation were going ways that I was like not not expecting or prepared for, but always knew that there was a bigger world in mind. I was thinking living in that generation where like the before the Berlin Wall and after the Berlin Wall, like there was just also a generation of like yeah. there was some big changes. I mean, I'm a I'm also hiding under desks in case a nuclear war happens. <laughs> do you laugh about that these days? Because I do. Because yes. you know, Nevada test site. Like those yeah. were the drills. Like yeah. Hide under so we're going to fry to death under the desk? <laughs> Mostly because they just was like, we don't know what we would do. So at least if you're under the desk, <laughs> we know where all the kids are. So we can tell them they're all under their desks once the nuclear war happens. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that there it was, uh, you know, sometimes I think are more overtly and more mainstream political than others. I was a, As a kid, I understood that Ronald Reagan was bad. I didn't know why, but I knew all the adults were mad at him in my life. Um <laughs> So I think and my mom as I, you know, my mom, I don't think I understood it as political at the time, but she's, uh, you know, of that generation where anytime a group of black folks got together, I mean, it still happens now, but really like this is post-civil rights era. Black people kind of think maybe we can achieve our way out of this, but then also realize very quickly that they can't. So I had a joke in my act back in the day that I was 11 years old before I realized that a cracker was also a delicious snack. Uh, so, you know, it was, <laughs> there was always talk. 
And I think that so for me, it was just like and then I think but really what politicized my act and my routine was Barack Obama running for president was when it was like every everywhere I heard they were talking about this black man. And it just felt me like so many men, so much mainstream media was racist in the way they talked about it, even if they were saying it, talking about him in, quote unquote, good ways. And that's when I was like, I'm thinking about this all the time. I want to put it into my act. And, and certainly, of course, it's a huge, huge deal, right? First black president of this country. And um, sometimes I think about the impact of his presidency on black people. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is, I mean, so the night that, that he was elected the first time, I remember I was sitting in, in what used to be a black bar uh, in downtown Oakland. Those don't exist anymore, but um, mm-hmm. that's another show. Um, and it was just all of black people, right? And there was this moment where the returns started coming in and it was so clear. It was just it. Mm-hmm. Like Obama was going to be the next president of this country. And the black folks started singing free at last, free at last, uh, almighty, yep. free at last. Yep. And I looked at my partner at the time and mm. I said, we are so beeped. Because <laughs> right? I was just so clear that we had put all of our faith That's into this dude. <laughs> Who had not said anything about being yeah. our salvation? I mean, to his credit, right? He never made the promise and then broke it. He never made the promise. And no, he, so when he, he had alluded, to operate with— he sort of Go ahead. Al- you go. He allowed go. himself to be—he allowed people to put the promise on him, right? Like he—when oh, people— you know, he allowed he understood that part of the part of his ascension was that people saw him as the promise. And he never said, no, 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 no. Like he, would, he never said that. And so he, ne- <laughs> he was like he was like, yeah, I'll let you do that because I understand that part of this brand and even the hope and change thing was sort of vague yeah. enough that you could put hope and you could put it into any box you wanted to. Yeah. And then he just I mean, he was a pro- President, right? For, mm-hmm. for good, for bad. I mean, I certainly have critiques of his presidency. Um, but, but I think that that impacted black people in a kind of way. And, and, and I think we saw that the second round that he ran mm-hmm. and, and uh, that, that downward trend of black folks having any desire <laughs> to mm-hmm. engage with this system, Democrat or Republican ever since. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, for me, you know, I was certainly somebody who was probably you would have looked at. I was probably singing free at last in that bar <laughs> wherever I was that night, just because the <laughs> the symbol did feel like something and it did feel impossible. And I remember I was with my mom yeah. who, you know, grew up in Indiana. And so she, the idea that there would be a black president in her lifetime was, you know, not she couldn't wrap her brain around it at first. And so there is a part of it, like this is a big symbol. It means something. But then. You know, our mutual friend Fabiano Rodriguez and Jeff Chang, our mutual friends, took me to the border and talked about Obama as the deporter in chief. And this was like, you know, within a couple years of that. And so I really started to understand that, like, as you said, he's presidenting the way president's president. And 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 because he is this symbol, he doesn't get maybe we're not even looking at him as a black community as honestly as we look at another president because we're sort of overtaken by the symbol. And we're seeing that, right, that immigration issue again with Biden, where like folks were so excited and ready to be done with the orange dude, right? Mm-hmm. And there were all these promises uh, that Biden made about, you know, undoing so much of the damage uh, mm-hmm. that Trump did or continued, right, to do mm-hmm. uh, to, to immigrants. And, and Biden, here we go, with another Democratic president just dragging his feet. You know, a lot of folks are talking about, right, Republican, Democrat, uh, what does my partner say? Two. Two sides of the same bad penny. I think that's how the phrase goes. Um, Michael Moore used to say the evil of two lessers. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And, and there's this conversation about a third party. I mean, we have the Green Party, but I don't 
I don't find that they're engaging the folks they need to engage, i.e. black folks, brown folks, poor folks, in the way that's necessary to mobilize folks. And I'm looking at this upcoming, you know, the next presidential where that dude has said he's running again. And I'm gravely concerned about well, the ability of the left the to mobilize. Party. I'm here to talk to you about the forward party, Andrew Yang's party. I really, just okay. kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll listen. You're the homie. I will listen. I'm, I might have something to say afterwards, but I'll listen. <laughs> I love that you. Okay. All right. Come out. <laughs> you, <laughs> Try me. <laughs> you might get lots of emails, but go for it, my dude. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm totally kidding. I am not. That is not. No, I think. Yes, the idea of another party is exciting. But as I learned, even when looking into me and Hari Kondabolu looked into the Green Party a lot when Jill Stein was running, which I know that's a four-letter word. Uh, but like the idea, and 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 actually, uh, uh, Rosa Clemente is the one who sort of really explained it to us in a way that was like, oh, that you need so much infrastructure and so much money. And really, if you're going to be a third-party candidate, you should be running for like the for local office before you and build your way up to something like the presidency. And that takes a long time, and people don't want to think about that, so they just want to run for president. Yeah. You know, so yeah. so yes, I certainly I get excited no matter what the not no matter what, but when I see candidates winning local offices or smaller offices who are clearly not the business as usual. I was a white guy lawyer who went to law school, you know, who went to a an right. Ivy League academy. So for me, people who are just who are outside of the who are outside of what the system normally promotes? I get excited when I see those people winning office, and you're seeing more and more of that around the country. People who never would have thought about running for office 20 years ago are now thinking about are now running and winning local elections or smaller elections. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm yes, me too. And well, I'm watching. Yes. Not putting my hope in electoral politics to save us. I think is the other. There thing. we go. From someone like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I'm just saying it's a it's like a, a you know, in the if my the thing I take with me from Boston is the idea of the poo poo platter. I don't know if do you know what a poo poo platter is? A lot of people in no, the West Coast. What's the poo poo platter? A poo poo platter is a thing that happens at a lot of Chinese restaurants, especially the ones that like non-Chinese people go to where it's like it's just an appetizer platter but it's just basically like instead of like do you want the egg rolls or the spare ribs or the wontons it's a platter filled with all those things like so it's and it's called a poo-poo platter when I was a kid it was my favorite thing to get and so I feel the same way about uh rescuing America from the clutches of fascism all I let's let's try everything <laughs> like let's just yeah. do a little all bit all roads in yeah, yeah. I'm there with you all roads in right we, we need the streets for sure um, and, and we do. We need people that are brave enough to, to sit in the belly of the beast. And I just I, I've seen, though, how it eats up progressives yeah, no, it and how hard that is. Right. And, for sure. And, and we elect people and then we just leave them there. We're like, all right, well, she's got it or he's got it. And then we disappear. And then we're like, well, yeah. how come no change happened? Well, because we yeah. stopped happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look all at right, jobs now. like you think like people get like you see all the people running for like, I mean, we're going to do that here shortly. But I think about mayor of New York seems like an awful job. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems yeah. like, it just seems like, and yet a lot of people want that job. And the minute they get it, New York City's like, no, not you. <laughs> <laughs> and Listen, I ran people, for mayor and I'm so glad I lost. I'm so yeah. glad I lost. Yeah. Can I tell you? I mean, I'm so I didn't want to, I didn't want to put you on front street like that, but that's exactly the same thing. Like thinking of you as <laughs> mayor of Oakland does not seem like, I mean, I don't know if this is, but it doesn't seem like a great job. It doesn't seem like a great job. It looks like a horrible job. I mean, I ran, you know, I ran, I ran hard, y'all that, that yeah. supported. Thank you so much. You included. Thank you so much. Yes. And I just, you know, hindsight or perspective, you know, almost four years out. And I'm like, whew, dodge that yeah. bullet. And um, yet you want to make, you want somebody to have want. that job. 
who is that is a person that you like and feel like wants to do good and has good intentions and has good people behind them. So you want the a good person to have it, but ultimately once they get it, it's not like it's you know it seems like a like a like a bad job. Yeah, I I, I absolutely agree. Uh, you all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with Kamau W. Bell. You have a new book out. Uh, do the work an anti-racist activity book what yes. was the impetus for the book how did it come about well yeah first of all it was co-written by kate Schatz, who's another local yes. alameda residence and she's the written the books rad american women a to z which she collaborated with uh, Miriam klein who's a head of the art department at the berkeley, at berkeley high school still i believe uh so yeah this is a bunch of so it's a home game all the way through so me and kate it was really like, you know, 2020, COVID's happening, and, you know, the news is all about COVID. And then, as we all know, George Floyd got uh, murdered by the police in Minneapolis on May 25th. And then suddenly me, and I'm sure this happened to you too, suddenly you get all sorts of people reaching out to you, all sorts of white people reached out to you, all sorts of white media outlets basically saying, can you please show up and explain racism? And you're like, hasn't that been my yeah. job for the last 10, 20 years, whatever? <laughs> And so, and I found myself having the same conversations with a bunch of different, like I got booked on more white talk shows. I guess those are just called talk shows mostly that I had in my life. Like people just come on this show and talk to us, come on this show and talk to us. And so I started reaching out to Kate because Kate was doing the same thing from her white perspective because she's an anti-racist. And I was like, can you tell me new things to say to these white people, especially these white people with privilege? And so we had a lot of conversations about it. And one of those conversations that we had ended up being the framework for a conversation I had with Conan O'Brien. That was like, I felt was like, this is the best conversation I've had like this because Kate had helped me. And so then I was like, maybe we can write a book together. And we started talking about that. And we both had the idea of like, instead of writing one of the, the there's many great anti-racist books out there. Many of them feel like textbooks or don't feel like, we're like, how do we do this in a way that is like, how do we make the revolution irresistible as the saying goes? So we're like, let's make it, let's try to make it fun, but not screwing around as we say, I'm cleaning it up for the radio. Like, so let's actually like fill it with like, activists and ideas and assignments and ways to to do anti-racism work in your community and games and puzzles and crossword puzzles but it's so but it's so it's gonna be fun but it's really gonna have like some hardcore information in there and that's what we've tried to do with the book and it does have hardcore information in there i mean i i learned stuff i consider myself a student of the movement and, and history i think one of my favorites is you have um there's this page in there about presidents and yes. the, the top hits of presidents or something. The greatest hits. <laughs> the greatest hits, there you go, right? And then you have to assign the horrific thing that that president did um, with the Which case. president did the um, horrific thing. And, you know, and, and let me be clear, I just want to say this, Kat. We were thinking about, like, you and Alicia Garza and all these activists we know in our lives that, like, what if Kat Brooks picks this up and is like, what is this, bull? Like, you know, it's so like... <laughs> Like I, we wanted to make sure that our friends who are in this life every day, even if you're like, yeah, I don't need to know all this because I've been doing this work all my life. Oh, but there's things in here I didn't know. And I appreciate the fact that they actually are doing the damn thing. I do. I mean, I did have a question in here with you uh, for you. It was like, okay, dude, crossword uh, puzzles and, and coloring and stickers, which uh, some of these yes. are going on my computer, by the way. I have a new computer yeah. and it needs yeah. to be populated with stickers. Sure. I was like, this isn't funny. Um, but of course, you found <laughs> a way uh, <laughs> to, to, to make it uh, funny uh, and enjoyable. You know, there's that, that phrase, laugh or scream. Mm -hmm. um, and I mm -hmm. try really hard to laugh because mm -hmm. screaming hurts my throat. Yep. Um, and you want to save the scream for when you need it. Go ahead. 
Exactly. Talk about using comedy to help people digest stuff, right? So for that person that maybe doesn't want to hear me scream FTP on the mm-hmm. corner or, or mm-hmm. long speeches about all of the horrible things, how comedy helps folks digest uh, some of the stuff that we got to sit with. I mean, I would say this, like, you know, you know this cat because I've hung around with you long enough. Like we can have a conversation about brutal things or things that make us sad and find laughter because that's your that's your system self-defense mechanism to not get taken down by the pain. Right. So every every funeral, there's somebody laughing at some point every like. And also as as black folks, if we didn't turn this pain into art, we wouldn't still be here. If we didn't figure out ways mm. to find some some breath and some space, we wouldn't still be here. You know, America, you're welcome for all of your popular music because black people were like, I got to do something with this racism. How about invent <laughs> rock and roll? And so the idea being that, like that I don't people ask me all the time, like, how do you turn into humor? I just don't understand. Like, I really I'm almost like I don't even understand the question. But I think I how to, professionally I'm just doing what I what we all do as amateurs is like we take this pain and we figure out a way to find laughter in it. And also the best way to communicate anything is through laughter. Like every public speaker tries to be a little bit funny. They all try to open on a joke because, you know, if people are laughing, they're paying attention. That's the only response, you know, that people are actually doing because they are paying attention. People can go mm-hmm, and be thinking about laundry. People can go, yes, amen, <laughs> and be thinking about laundry. But if they are really laughing, if they're actually not la- not pretending to laugh, and really laughing, then, you know, they're paying attention. You say in the book, uh, white folks probably need the book most, but it's not explicitly for white people. Say more about that. I mean, I just think we, we, you know, when you start to, I mean, I know this from the work I do all throughout life, like with United Shades. I know that the core audience of United Shades is your average CNN viewer who does not look like me or you. So therefore, I've learned over time, like there's ways to communicate information where you sort of say, where you tell the audience who you're talking to when you're talking to them. So like we did an episode about, uh, black folks in Appalachia. So if you watch that episode, there's yes. times where I'm talking to black folks about us, and these are our yeah. people. The white audience, I'm not talking to them, but they can be. They can sit and listen to it and learn something. But then there's times where I'm talking mm-hmm. to that white CNN audience. I might even go, and you white people out there, blah 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 blah, to let them know this part is for you. And so for me, I think when you put any project together, you sort of want to know who the audience is, especially with a book. And then I think with a book like this, I know there's going to be people who suspiciously pick it up. Who are like, who's this book for? All right, I, I see you picking it up that way. So I'm going to put it, we're going to put it in here <laughs> at the front so you can go. It's, it is definitely a book that is a sort of a 101 approach to racism, which means automatically it's white people are one of the tar- is one of the biggest audiences. I had a black woman get mad, at, not mad, but she was like, I'm tired of having to explain racism to white people. I'm tired of it. And I was like, well, that's what the book is for. You shouldn't have to do it anymore. Send them the link to buy this book. And I, cause I get that. I do get yeah. that. So yeah, this, that's, yeah. it's not about the fact that like, like you said, you learned something there. I learned stuff putting the book together, but who needs the one-on-one racism conversations country more than anybody. If you could only give it to one group of people, it would be white people. Right. Uh, you say you learned something too. What, what, what is the thing that you learned that stands out the most as you were putting this book together? I mean, I, Kate is really the history buff. So, like, there's so much history in this book that, like, I'm that I was like completely ignorant to, or sort of thought I understood but didn't understand. So there's like, so I think that, for example, like there's the, and I'll say the there's the page where we have the different photos that are sort of look like a museum gallery, and you have to look yeah. at the photos and say what you think is going on in those photos. So that's an example of like, I don't think I would have known. Man, not all of them, but many of those photos, I wouldn't know what was going on. And then once you find out what was going on, your 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 stomach drops usually, you know. And I think that's a great example of like 
how do you take information instead of just putting a photo in a book and going, this photo is this? How do you take people on a journey to go, oh, this is a photo with white people laughing? Oh, they must have just finished a picnic or something. They're so oh, this is the photo where these white people found out they're not guilty for for uh, killing it for murdering Emmett Till. And they're smiling and laughing about it. Yeah. And so for me, it's like that's the, the all the history. Like I did, I'm one of those people who did not like history in school because the way mm. I think now I look back because of the way it was presented to me. And yet now I'm the person who's like, we'll click on any YouTube video that's like, let me explain this thing in five minutes. Okay, let's go, let's go. <laughs> Come on, there's uh, there's all of these places now, right? In this iteration of our movement, uh, for for white folks to talk about race in a quote unquote safe space, and I, I do want to shout out organizations like Surge. Or locally, we've got CRC, uh, Community Ready Corps, uh, I think it's accomplices and allies. From your perch, right, traveling all over the world, talking to a bunch of different kinds of white people, including the Ku Klux Klan. I still, I know that was a long time ago, but I just, every time I think of you, I think about that episode. I'm just like, Stu is out of his mind. But um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I watched it just to see if you died at the end. To, to I know. That people like, Did, people still it? think I might die at the end, even though it was like <laughs> eight years ago. <laughs> Um, what have you found are the greatest challenges? And you do cover some of this in the book, uh, you and Kate, uh, for, for white folks, what, what have you found? Like are the challenges that make it so hard for them, right? Like some folks get yeah. like mad, uh, if you yeah. even bring up the word race and racism. And, and I'm not talking about like the far, far right Trumpite. Mm -hmm. No, know, no, no. You're talking about th th those folks. That's I'm talking about just, you know, your average, you know, you're talking Mary about Berkeley Jane. residents. <laughs> and yeah, residents, that, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Hey. I, what, know, what have I you just, found? So I, we talk about this in the book. I think one of the biggest obstacles that people, that those types of white people who want to be on the right side of history and want to help is one, the sort of the paralysis of analysis. Like they're like, it's such a big problem. I don't know what to do. So maybe I'll just do nothing is the first thing because mm -hmm. they don't know how to get in. So the book is designed to go, here's a variety. There's probably hundreds of ways you can get in throughout this book as far as like things you can do in your neighborhood, in your town that you can help. And, you know, that in some ways that you don't even understand that like, oh, why would why would being part of why would helping a mutual aid organization be part of anti-racism? Because generally mutual aid organizations are, are trying to help people, black folks and people of color. So right. I would say this. So that was so that's one is like we give you a lot of ideas. And the other thing is like, but what if I mess up is the thing that keeps people from doing the work. A lot of white folks, what, but what if I mess up? What do I, and, and we sort of go, no, no, no. It's not what if you mess up. It's what do you do when you mess up and sort of embracing the fact that yeah. you're going to mess up at some point and then how do you recover? And so I, we really concentrate on the idea of like, don't get so afraid that you're going to mess up to don't do anything. Just understand that at some point you're going to mess up and then it becomes about recovering, which is about apology and amends and doing better. Yeah, and I, I actually did, I, I clocked that page in here too, like how to apologize uh, yeah. when, when you mess up. Um, yeah. You also say uh, in the book, right, that, so this covers, you know, a lot of history, also, you know, things that are happening here in the present, but, but you say towards the end that this book is about the future. What do you mm -hmm. want folks to do after they read this book? I mean, for me, this is like, I mean, I was, uh, I did a lot of martial arts in high school. And so I owned a lot of martial arts books. And I, and at some point you understand reading the book on martial arts does not make you an expert in that brand of martial arts. <laughs> <laughs> like if you just, if, if you Hope just you don't read find the that book, out the hard way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get this, I just finished reading a book about martial arts. So I'm ready to fight. That the book is sort of saying, this is how you begin a practice of this martial art. And 
and also if you practice it by yourself, you're probably not going to get that good at it. The books always show you partner activities. And, and so the idea being that like the book is not reading. The book is not the work. Reading the book is like the way to start is one way to start the work. And, the, and so the, the hope is that you start that people who read this book who come to this with like that sort of like, I don't know what to do. And I'm afraid I mess up by the end. We're really encouraging you to put a plan together. And as we all know, with working out, oh. uh, that if you that we all whatever our workout is for us, some people it's like it's like The Rock. I follow him on Instagram. He's working out twice a day, every day. And for some people, it's like I'm going to walk around the block once a day. But we all know that if you don't do it regularly, you're not going to get the benefits of that working out. And it's the same as you know, preaching the choir with anti-racism. If you're not regularly engaged in it, it you're then you're not going to get the benefit. So and also That's if you're not raising the stakes of what your personal best is, you're going to stop getting the benefit of it. So if it's the same walk your entire life around the block, that it's not going to mean as much to your body. And so I think that's what we want to get people to know that like, this is about putting action out there and doing it regularly and starting wherever you start, but building on it. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I say this a, a lot and actually shout out to my friend, Maureen Benson, who does a lot of white anti-racist work and, and who I, I heard say it first, right? Like being an accomplice or, or being an anti-racist working on it, it's, it's every day. It's every single day, no matter how far you've come, how, you know, how, how much you've overcome. And, and I think that's true actually for all of us, right? So I say, you know, white supremacy is a disease and we are all infected, right? So even, mm. even black folks, like mm-hmm. every single day, I got to I gotta get up and I got to look at the way in which white supremacy is showing up in my behavior, my language, the food I buy, you know, mm-hmm. where does even my privilege show up? Um, For sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I feel that same way. That's why when people ask me, even when you're at the beginning, it's like, how are you doing? I could go into a long litany of things that I feel like are wrong right now. <laughs> and I recognize I'm living at a very high level of privilege based on the career I have and the success in the career I've had. So I've just resorted to saying, as I'm like, I'm doing compared to, I'm doing better than many. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. like, yeah. don't get caught up in my own problems, especially when I'm talking to somebody and on the radio about like, about the problems I have, because compared to what most folks are going through in this country, specifically, we're talking about the people who live in in the Bay Area and black folks in Oakland and, and Berkeley and San Francisco that like are, you know, it, it is, it, you know, it's it's hard out there right now and it's getting harder out there right now. So I want to understand my level of privilege at all times. I want to get into some of the issues now, uh, Kamau. Um uh, you you had me and, and Deputy Director of APTP, James Birch, and our friend, uh, Professor Nikki Jones. Hey, Nikki. She usually listens yep. uh, at UC. She's in the book. On, la- yep, I know. She's in the book. It's very exciting. Um, I th- last year? Two years ago? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's hard to know, but it was, la- it was last year. It, yeah, a hundred years last ago? Year yeah, it was last year. Yeah. <laughs> what it feels like uh, to talk about defund, right? Like you sort of mm-hmm. were on this mission to help people understand defund. And um, since mm-hmm. that time, we've seen what I believe is a coordinated national misinformation campaign. Like I really want a reporter to do a FOIA request because I think something came out of the White House and, and every city uh, mm-hmm. across the country that was trying to beat back the defund momentum uh, operated from whatever that that was right like tell these lies mm-hmm. uh, and and the lie you know part of the lie was um this rise in in violent crime that we've seen in in uh, urban cities you know and here in Oakland and um was defund's fault even though defund like mm-hmm. didn't happen anywhere so it didn't happen, yeah, no, Oakland, didn't happen right? but it somehow it ruined everything it, it ruined everything um 
you know, I believe that that it came as a result of the economic pandemic, right? That that of was hot on the heels of the coronavirus. How how has that impacted the way you talk about defund? Are you still trying to help people understand what that means, or have you thrown up your hands and like, you know, all right, you, you oh no, get it I I'm not in the position I'm to done. throw up my hands. I I only throw up my all hands right. if you call me and go. If you call me and go, come out, stop talking about defund. We're throwing up our hands. I'd be like, all right, Cat Brooks, tell me to stop talking about it. But, <laughs> but other than that, no, no not I'm doing always. That. We said fifty percent, and we mean it. <laughs> yeah, no. Other than that, I'm just I'm always on a you know I'm I you know first of all I want to be clear. You reach out to me if you need if there's something you need me to do. Uh, please, as always, let me know. Um, but yeah, like I'm, I'm, you know, I think recently I was tweeting about something. I was like, this is why we talk about defund the police. So there was, you know, there's all these, you know, all these examples throughout the media regularly of black folks who are, people are calling the cops on them for mental health issue, for mental health disturbances. And they end up dead. Like so many examples of that, which to me is like the most basic reason to defund the police. And then everything, everything we're seeing in the, in the COVID era and all the economic disruption and all the and all the and wages and all the wage problems are all things are like these are more arguments for defund the police because and it's just about you know and and I know that like that phrase as you know has become it's it's like it's like woke it doesn't mean anything of what yeah. it originally meant or or critical race theory the the right has a good does a good job of taking phrases that come out of the left and turning them into something that nobody on the left would recognize and then selling them back to the left. And then those same white people we were talking about earlier who are like, I want to help. But then they buy into the right's version of that phrase, not the left's version of that phrase. Right, right. I mean, I, I mean, I think one thing that, that, you know, you do have the power to do, I do think we need to be having conversations about... Abolition, yes, and 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 mm-hmm. defund, and but and also right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like our people are hurting right now, right? Like I mm-hmm. think Oakland is about to surpass eighty homicides this year, mm-hmm. um, and and having those conversations with I feel like we we shy away from on the left, right? We don't want to talk about the right now. We don't want to want to talk about the fact that the people are getting killed, but we have to, like, because those yeah. are the folks that we have to help understand that we've been investing in this system of policing forever. And it has mm-hmm. never kept us safe, and it's not going to keep us safe. Um, but helping folks find the courage to, like, say, "F the status quo," we got to do something different. But we got to have the conversation. I 100 percent agree, and I'm, and like I said, I, I feel like my role in that often is like I did with the defund the police episode of United Shades is to bring on people like you who are ready to who know how to have the conversation. And my job is just to I'm the DJ, you're the rapper. So like I'm just there. <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, you know, Chief Armstrong, who was on that episode of Defund the Police before he was a chief, talking about things that he was gonna do or not ideas. And he was sitting there with Pastor Michael McBride and his brother Ben McBride. Mm-hmm. And there was this sort of sense of like that what would happen and now, of course, what would happen once he became there or at that point, I think we, he was headed towards being the chief, but he was not announced yet. But the idea and I've seen him on the news all the time looking like, oh, I don't know what to do here. So it's it's clearly something's got to change. Listen, he went on Fox News and you don't have to say anything. I don't want to paint you in a corner, but he went on Fox News and told all the white people that his department had been defunded after he got a $38 million increase. So, I, you know, I, I, I and then he don't understand why I talk. He said to somebody, he was like, well, she keeps talking bad about me. Yeah. What do you uh, want me to say about you? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you, you come on, my G. I mean, I also supposed to, in theory, some- want the same thing. 
some jobs you're going to get some jobs getting talked bad about as a part of the job. I have a job like that. Like, so I can't. Me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's part of the job description is people are going to talk bad about you. And, and that's why the benefits are so good for, a, for a job like chief of police, which I know they are better than they, than they are for your job, Kat. I'm not trying to say you two are the same. <laughs> we are definitely not the same. That, actually, I was going to ask you that, but then I skipped over it, but I'm going to go back. Um, part of the job is being talked bad about, you know, I get, death threats, hate mail, uh, dragged on, you know, Twitter, which y'all is not real life, but you know, Mm -hmm. um, I I get dragged there. What about you? Backlash, threats, your safety, you've got a family. Yep. I mean, all that. I mean, I certainly worry about it. I certainly think about it. And, you know, and we have like made changes in our lives to make sure that we feel more safe. So, you know, (laughs) which I'll just say that, you know, so it's certainly something that I think about all the time. You know, there's uh, we have security people on United Shades so that, you know, you know, there's just a lot of things that we have done to sort of because, yeah, I got I got young kids and. And the other thing is, like, I had, I mean, the most backlash I probably maybe have ever experienced over a sustained period of time was after the Cosby doc came out earlier this year. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was, a lot of that backlash was from us, from our people, from black folks. I had a question for you about that. Um, yeah. So I'm, like, skip down on my little list of questions. Let's, let's segue to that. Yeah. I, I do want to spend some time talking about United Shades. Um, it, it took me a minute to watch it, but, yeah. I, but I did. Uh mm-hmm. Like moment of truth here, right? I, I was scared to watch it. The whole conversation was so hard. Yeah, I, mean, it was I understand. All the that. outrage, of course, right, right. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I didn't, I didn't have. I love my daddy. My daddy was doing other things when I was growing up uh, mm-hmm. uh, that did not always include being a daddy, right? Mm-hmm. And and that was the family. Like when we as little black kids, right? Mm-hmm. That was the family we wanted. That was the daddy yeah. we wanted. You know, without yep. the rapey stuff, of course. Um, yeah. Why did you decide that we needed to talk about it? And 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 what was it in in was part of the mission? And I'm making this very much about me. Excuse me, um, but but to give some of us permission to mm-hmm. have the conversation was that was yeah, that yeah. I think for people, it's really I think really the. The heart of this discussion is people like, you know, I'm of that again, I'm that well, I was born into the Cosby world, as I would say it, like he was already everywhere on TV. He was all over kids TV. He was on grown up TV. Uh, so, and then by the time he starts doing the Cosby show, I was like served up, I was 11 years old in 84. So I was perfectly primed for that. And so for me, it's about like, how do, and then I became a stand-up comedian and it's like, well, how do I talk about his influence on my life now? Knowing what I, knowing what I know and, and believing all these women. So, and for me, it was like, it's, do you, I, I couldn't figure out, I can't throw the positive influence away. And I don't want to not confront the negative things because I don't want to be the person who's like step like the, the white people we just talked about who are like, I just don't want to I don't know what to do. So I'm not going to do anything. And for me, there was really like in a way of like, how do we the kind like if me and you were to sit down at 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 that old black bar in Oakland and we would just be like, let's talk about Cosby. I think it would be a pretty wide open conversation. And so I was that where and maybe if there was a bunch of our friends there and, so, and we and we had some other cool people there who we didn't know. But this person's an expert on drugs. This person's an expert on 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 the sexual issues that it would be a pretty wide open conversation that would uncover that would uncover lots of things. And we would all sort of weigh in where we felt like we could fit in. But it would definitely be centered on a black conversation. I felt like I wanted to try to have that conversation that I feel like I've seen happen or been a part of. But in a but in a broader way that invited more people into the conversation. 
Yeah, and I, I had uh, the, that question, too, written down to, to talk to you about, was it our people that came for you? You know, black folks, we say often, and, and I think this really, like, has been passed down, like, from the days of chattel slavery, right, where, where our business being out in the open could mean that we were killed or our children were killed mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, any of the other horrible things that, that happened to us. But there's definitely that tenant in our community. Like, we keep our business to ourselves. We don't, we don't air our dirty laundry in front of the white folks. Um, what was the tone and tenor of the black folks that came for you after that documentary came out? I think there, there's there's sort of, I would say, two distinct groups. One group of people who don't believe Bill Cosby did anything wrong and is being targeted by... <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. So that I don't really have much time <laughs> for that conversation. Like, I, yeah, don't, I don't... We're, we're I, past that. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any time for that conversation. So, but they, so it's just like people who just like, he didn't do anything wrong. Or... The or this is how show business works, and he's no different than everybody else who does this. And you're like, but what about the hypocrisy? And they don't have time for that. So, and those are people who are like, I don't care what he did wrong. We don't we don't do this. We don't have this conversation again. You're saying like we don't tear down a black man, and it's been pointed out to me by many people. He tore himself down, and That's if true. anything, this doc does a lot to sort of go. Now that it's all torn down, let's see what's here. And so there are a lot of things in that doc that I think we people a lot of people learned about Cosby in that doc in ways they wouldn't have learned if we hadn't talked about all of it. So yeah. like the stuntman stuff and like the the HBCU things or things yeah. that like a lot of people who were not as privy to the conversation as me and you are had never heard about before. I mean, I know stunt performers who'd never heard like, you know, uh, uh, that had never heard about the black stunt thing, which is an important story. It's just a complicated story because yeah. of everything else he was doing. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Kamau W. Bell, who co-wrote a book with Kate Schatz called Do the Work, an Anti-Racist Activity Book. Kamau Bell, seven seasons of United <laughs> Shades of America. You're <laughs> still here. Yep. Are you surprised you've lasted this long? I mean, not only are you a black man in Hollywood, but you're yep. a black man with a big mouth in Hollywood. <laughs> and, he, and it gets bigger every still season. still standing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, are you surprised you're here? And how do you balance surviving in Hollywood with like not being afraid to say all the things? I mean, luckily, I think the great the thing that has been the uh, the seven season that has maybe been the biggest uh, blessing for me, which is funny to say, is that I'm not in like regular Hollywood. I'm on I'm on this news uh-huh. channel, CNN. So the metric for success is probably different. Like they don't have a million shows on air. They have like th- like over a course of a year, they may they have less than ten shows. And I would say, like, as far as original series, they maybe have four different original series. So, like, once I got in and showed I could do do what I needed to do, it sort of was like they were like, keep that guy going. So, like, I just think that, like, if I was on if I was on NBC at eight o'clock on Thursdays to quote to go back, it would the method <laughs> would be different. Uh, so I think that, like, yeah. I benefit from the fact that there are more outlets and more ways to judge success. And so one of the things that I think that has actually worked out is just because of the fact that we've won some of the shiny trophies. It sort of shows that the industry respects what we're doing. So I think that has helped. But no, I didn't. I just always, you know, I didn't know that I would. I, you know, I definitely I'm, I always joke and say I think I'm in the Showbiz Hall of Fame just to be seven seasons of a television show <laughs> at this point in yeah, history yeah. is a big deal. For real. Uh and also at the same time, I have the other thing I've never done is like rested on that and just sort of like, okay, well, I got that. I won't do anything else. So like you're talking about the Cosby doc, we talk about the book. I always realize that this moment could pass at any moment. And I don't want to be sitting here like going, oops, but I thought I was gonna be on TV forever. So I'm always right. trying to figure out ways to get more work out there and do more things. So yeah, def- but I definitely feel 
lucky, blessed, uh, highly favored <laughs> that 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 people. <laughs> and also, like I know that uh, the landscape I came into was very different than it is now. My show followed Bourdain's show, and it was meant to sort of be like a show that, like, if you like this, you might like this. This year, I followed Patagonia, which is like a nature documentary. So the landscape has changed dramatically. You, you talked about this earlier, and I want to talk about it some more. Uh, you did a segment on Black Appalachia, um, which I'm super excited about. Uh, a couple things in that, that episode. You talked to my friend Ashley Henderson uh, about mm. the Highlander Center. She's great. Um, I love she her knows. so much. She's phenomenal, right? She's, she's yeah. one of my heroes. Uh, yes. a, a lot of folks don't know about the amazing history of that place, right? Like legit yeah. where Rosa Parks and MLK trained and, and the fact that it's still going and supporting organizers and activists. Um, talk talk about learning about the Highlander Center and your conversation with, with Ms. Henderson. Well, this is interesting because I think like there's a history that I was not really privy to either. We did a show about uh, yeah. coal miners in Appalachia like in season two, I think, and we stumbled across these black ex-black coal miners there and and so ever since we like and that was not a part of what the show was supposed to be. But basically, one of my producers, Geraldine Porras, who also produced the Cosby doc, like saw this thing called the Lynch Colored School. It was like, I think Kamau's going to know more about this building. <laughs> and so like, and so yeah. <laughs> the, so she went in to talk to the people and they ended up being on the show, which was great. And so we sort of went back to that same place and did a deeper dive. But really was like the impetus behind it was our producer, Mo Fallon, who, you know, from the defund the police episode who yeah. has family in West Virginia. So he was the one who was like, we need to go back and tell the stories of black Appalachia. Like he was, the, and Mo's like a, a, like the, like a, a bro, but like the best, sweetest, biggest, hardest white bro you'd ever meet. Like really, yeah. really gets it and is doing the work. And so he was the one who was like, we need to go back and tell these stories. And then for me, it was like one of those episodes where it's like, I just get to sort of go along for the ride and learn and have a good time and try to shoot a squirrel and then, you know, and, and, <laughs> and you know, go to a baby shower and like really, and then go to the Highlander Center, which you feel like with Nikki Giovanni and make, and make pig's feet with Nikki Giovanni, you know, like, so yeah. that was really one of those where it's like, I got, it wasn't my like idea. So I just got to ride side saddle to this great experience that Mo had put together. And then sit at the Highlander Center and just feel like that's one of those moments of making TV where you're like, who cares that we're filming this? I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. I, I had the privilege. It hasn't aired yet. So I might get in trouble for talking about it, but I got to talk to Amani Perry and she's got a, a new book out called uh, South to America, a journey below the Mason Dixon to understand the soul of a nation. And, um, She's from the South, um, mm -hmm. but she, she starts the book by by talking about needing to go to the Appalachia to talk to black folks there and her trepidation about going to a place with such a history of extreme violence, right? extreme racism. Um, mm -hmm. like, like we mentioned, you, you know, you kick it with the Klan, so maybe you were cool, but did you have any trepidation about going to that part of the country? I mean, I guess at this point, I know this is a part of what I do, so there's definitely your, you know— your top eye is a little more open, as that old poster would say in Boston, like, you know, because you're going to places where it's like, you know, the all those weird Brandon signs, <laughs> you see them everywhere. And it's not that I care about that, but it just sort of lets you know, this is the kind of people who live here. You know, you certainly know that, like, there's a lot more, like, open, like, sort of, like, just weird, like, like sort of anti-democrats, not anti-democracy, but anti-democrat signs in, like, store, like, this is a candy shop, you know what I mean? Like, what are we doing, you know? Right. And so... But it doesn't feel – again, I think that like – but then you meet these black folks who are like, I love it here. I would never leave. I hope to not have to leave despite the fact that industry has left and real estate is hard to find or, or, or there's not resources around here. There's not a grocery store. This is my home. And so when you look in the face of those black people who are like, 
who, yes, I see all those signs, or yes, there are people around here, but this is my home and I love it here. It sort of helps you look at it through a different lens. I've got, I just looked at the clock. I have so many more things I want to talk to you about, but I'm running out <laughs> of time. Um, I've got about... Okay. All right. You better. You have to. Like you mentioned, you you have so many like pans in the f- the, the fryer. Right? I, I look up. There's another thing that that you're doing. What what's on the horizon uh, for for you? What's coming up next? I mean, I know you're on the book tour. Is that going well? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. We are our last stop of the of this leg of the book tour is actually at uh, City Arts and Lectures in uh, San Francisco. Uh, that's in September. Okay. So in that that the, the that giant theater in San Francisco. So please come check us out there. Me and Kate will be there with Anna Sale, who's also a Bay Area resident from uh, Death, Sex, and Money. Uh, and then we're also me and Kate are working on like a basically like a a kid version of the book that will be very different, but nice. a anti racism book for kids. So those are the those are the big projects I'm working on now. And there's just a, I mean you know. That's the thing. There's a lot of things that happening right now, but nothing that is like in a position to sort of go, it's here. So, but I'll let you know. Yeah. All right. Well, we will, we will, we will be on the lookout for that. Kamal W. Bell, thank you so much. I know that you were in the middle of all of the things and you took an hour out hey, to chat with no, me. Uh, so you ain't got to thank me for that. What am I going to do? Tell you, what am I going to do? Tell you no, what, I had no home training. <laughs> <laughs> I don't owe you. What are you talking about, Kat? Come on. <laughs> right on, my brother. You have a great day. Talk soon. Uh, We have been speaking to renowned comedian W. Kamel Bell, who is the co-author of Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book that he wrote with co-author Kate Schatz. He's also the host of CNN's United Shades of America, the writer and producer of We Need to Talk About Cosby, a miniseries that explores the impact of the life and career of Bill Cosby up to and including his sexual assault cases. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about our topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. That's D-I-S. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. 